Welcome to Prajna Sparks. Yeshe and Zoba continue the series, Why Nirvana Matters, where we talk to contemporary teachers about nirvana, peace, and its relevance in our lives and practice of dharma. We're grateful to you for sharing and reviewing our podcast as often as you can. Today, we speak to Kim Allen. Kim is a teacher in the Theravadan tradition of Buddhism. She began meditating in 2003, seeking both a path out of suffering and the deeper truths of life. She trained for many years in the Theravada tradition and more recently with teachers of other Buddhist traditions. Her path has included long retreat, study of the suttas, and practice in Asia. She now lives as a lay contemplative. Kim serves as a teacher and author dedicated to offering classical dharma in a modern context. Good morning, Kim. It's such a pleasure to have you. Good morning. I'm very happy to be here. It's so lovely to see you, our beloved Dharma sister, and get this chance to talk with you a little bit about Nirvana. Wonderful. I look forward to it. I was wondering if maybe we could start just with you saying a little bit about how you understand Nirvana. I know that's a huge topic, but (laughs) if there's a, a brief description of how you understand it in your tradition and its importance. What a wonderful question to start with. So we have a very succinct definition in the Theravada tradition, which is that nirvana is the destruction of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's repeated many times in the text. Of course, there are other things that you can find, but that's almost the only clear definition that the Buddha of the early scriptures that we use gave. And then there are, of course, many uh, also kind of epithets or words, inspirational words that people use for it, unaging, unailing, undying or deathless, safety, non-clinging. Many of them are actually negative uh, in the sense of being uh, negations of things in order to maybe highlight that nirvana is not in itself a thing because we're so attuned toward making things into things. And that's part of the point is not to do that. So I think many of the words kind of try to point in that way. Some of them are also very beautiful words like peace or ultimate happiness, protection and safety. The island is another famous one. Yeah, to me, they're quite inspirational. And I think that's the aim. One of the things about your work that I find just so exhilarating and inspiring is how closely you use the study of the suttas and the Pali canon in all of your work. I'm curious, as you mention all of these words, which indeed are very rich, how you would describe that sutta study and that foundation in the suttas as valuable in your understanding of Nibbana and the practices leading to that. Yeah, for my path, it's turned out to be very meaningful to connect with the texts, particularly the Pali Canon. That was somehow where my heart went, but I've since discovered, you know, the texts of many other traditions. And I don't know that it's true for everyone, but there is certainly some fraction of practitioners who find that the texts speak in some way that is not just cognitive, but seems to transmit in the same way that 
a live teacher does. I mean, that's one could never say that a text replaces a live teacher, yet those texts came through wisdom lines that were deeply engaged with the Dharma and were very devoted to preserving the teachings of the Buddha. And with correct attention, it seems like that flavor can come through. So that's kind of the heart devotional reason. But in addition, of course, there is the information that's imparted through the written teachings, and they offer very much in the way of establishing right view in a person. And that's not right versus wrong, but it's appropriate or right view for traversing the path to freedom, to peace. Because the usual way that we've been trained to perceive and think of things and imagine our life, you know, naturally comes from our family, our culture, our society, our religion, whatever else we've learned, other conditionings. And that doesn't necessarily point us toward peace. And some people start to feel that in themselves. And the question is, well, how can I connect with a a better way of seeing things? And it really helps to know that people have been working on this for centuries, millennia, and to read these ancient texts, we really get that sense of how to see the world. Does that give a a flavor in the direction you were aiming for? Definitely. That's beautiful. I love that, Kim. So lovely. I'm a little bit curious just to go back to, to what you were saying about not making it a thing. And I wonder if there's some sense that you could talk about of especially working in the current cultural context, but I think historically as well, just being humans and always being so like goal-driven, if there's some sense that you have of working towards nirvana as peace and that being inspirational, but also how it balances against making it into a future-oriented goal-driven thing. That's such a great question because, you know, if we don't have anything that we're aiming for, it's hard to make effort on the path. And it does take some effort to change or transform our being. And yet there's always this danger of grasping on to an idea. My way around that is to have complete faith in the process, which is, you know, the process of mindfulness and dedicating oneself to seeing the truth. We can't see that immediately at the beginning, but neither are we completely blind. So we start by having a little sense that, oh, you know, it seems better to pay attention to my life than not to, you know, to have some developed mindfulness and to sit in meditation and try to keep the mind on the present moment. And that's good enough. You know, that's already different than what we were doing before. And so we keep at that and we maybe learn something of the teachings. And it's kind of a step-by-step process where... Each time we try to grasp onto something, if we're doing the practice correctly, we will eventually run into the pain of that grasping, whether we're grasping onto the ideal of what a compassionate person should look like, or the ideal of that our life should look like our teachers if we're succeeding at the path. You know, we grasp onto all kinds of things along the way, and all of them fall away step by step if we're doing it well. But you can't throw everything away from the very beginning. We don't have that capacity, most people, and you wouldn't want to. And so I have a a sort of a spacious view of uh, letting people hold on to what seems like the next thing that's, that's useful, that's the next step, and then releasing that. We have an image of climbing a ladder Now, I know that's already a goal-oriented image, but if you forget about the part about the goal, to get to the next rung of the ladder, you have to let go of the one that you were on to step up, and that's how it will keep going. 
I'm really moved, as you mentioned, by sort of the poetry of using terms like deathless and unconditioned and, and peace to point to something that's beyond those words. Can you say a little bit about how the suttas use that terminology to encourage going beyond words, going to experience and not clinging? Yeah, the Buddha encouraged people to, there are kind of positive things that are people are oriented to along the path. And primarily they have to do with meditative joy and happiness and tranquility. Those are qualities that are something in a sense, but they're arrived at by letting go, by letting go of hindrances in the mind. He has a wonderful quote where he says, if by letting go of a lesser happiness, one could achieve a greater happiness, a wise person would immediately release the lesser happiness to behold the greater. So he has this carrot of finding more and more sublime or elevated kinds of happiness, beginning with just calming the mind down when you sit down and then moving on to the actual qualities that support concentration, joy and happiness, piti and sukha and tranquility and cultivating the factors of awakening. So he has all kinds of things that are meant to be cultivated. But the kind of subtle part of this teaching is that in order to arrive at those more elevated, if I can use that term, states, it's always something has to be let go of to get there. You have to let go of ill will. You have to let go of fantasizing about lunch. You have to let go of sleepiness and you know other things that get in the way or doubt. And so at first we think we're going for the peace and the tranquility, not the ultimate peace of nirvana, but we think we're going for these intermediate things. But actually what we're doing is we're letting go. And at some level below the goal-oriented cognitive mind, the heart, is getting the point that it's the release that is the peace. And there will come a point where there's nothing left to release but the mind, and the mind will let go of itself. Wow, that's so beautiful, Kim. I just want to sit, actually, for a minute <laughs> with your description of it. I feel like it's so honoring of, you know, the way that we work and, and the, that sense of, in some ways, it's not bad to have a goal, right? If our goal is positive and and it is, you know, the end of suffering and peace and things like that, that we don't have to confuse ourselves by saying, oh, I can't have that or anything. And, and like you're describing the stepwise progression of it. And it makes me wonder a little bit how you personally see like the possibility of nirvana in this lifetime, or do you see it as a project of a longer than one lifespan project, or does that matter? That's a good question. I think everyone has to discover their own path through all of this. The Theravadan teachings do have a phrase sprinkled throughout them. It was mostly in teachings to monastics. It's kind of a, an idiom, so you can't quite translate it literally. It's dita dame, and that means in this very life. And the, the Buddha taught that Nibbana is accessible in this very life through following the path that he taught. That doesn't necessarily mean that somebody would be an arahant immediately or fully awakened, but that it's not a goal that's out of reach or that is going to, by definition, take a really long time. It also depends on how we can set up the conditions in our lives. Each person will find their own relationship to that. Do you personally find it helpful to have Nibbana as an inspiration to your path? 
Or is it something that's best not to think about it so much and just leave it aside and let things be what they are? Uh, for me, it's it's relevant uh, to to consider it and really uh, connect with it and deepen my appreciation of what the Buddha was pointing toward with that term. There are texts that say that there does come a point on the path where we need to turn toward it deliberately, in a sense, not as a goal orientation kind of thing, but it doesn't quite come about accidentally for most people. And so, you know, there will need to be uh, you'll have to hear the Four Noble Truths at some point so that you understand that there is this potential for the difficulties of the mind to completely end. And then often there comes a point in meditation where the mind is close to needing to let go and there's other, you know things come up. And so there has to be some encouragement from a teacher to point in the direction of Nibbana. And I do find it meaningful to really remember, oh yeah, you know, this was not just, this is something really radical that the Buddha was pointing toward. And it is going to be something completely outside of what I know. And it's always relevant to let go of anything that feels agitating or sticky in the mind. There's always possibility that that will end. Someone who's listening to this and feels inspired, where would you recommend for them to begin, particularly in this term? There are so many different ways the path is described. I almost hesitate to try to make it too specific. But in broad terms, the beginning is to have some kind of faith in a teacher or in the goal. And that doesn't mean at all blind devotion or giving over of one's judgment or anything like that. I think of it as the very basic level of faith is the sense of there could be a better way. You know, there could be a better way. And often we get to a point in our life just before we find the path where it's not working. Something is not working. You know, we've realized that our career is not inspiring or that something in us is wanting to grow and it doesn't have the right conditions. Something is not working. We could spiral into depression, addiction, all the things that we see in the world, or some little voice in us could say, there must be a better way. <laughs> and the better way appears in some form. Then we need to learn. We need to learn what that is. When you encounter a teacher or the teachings in some form, there's it's encouraged to learn something about them. So we could go back to what I said about learning the texts. For some people, that's the way. For other people, that's not a doorway, and they learn by going to live in a monastery and just being with people who are embodying some of what the Buddha talked about. There are so many different ways to connect, but we need to somehow get our conditions so that we are more in touch with the values and the ways of being we like. The first time I went to a Dharma group, it was just this local sitting group a few couple miles from my house. I hadn't even met my main teacher yet. I went there and I noticed that the people who were running the group seemed to be very comfortable with themselves. Like that was the main energy that I saw in them. I'm sure they had all kinds of qualities, but I at that time was not very comfortable with myself. And so that's what I saw in them. And a little something in me said, I want that. <laughs> so, you know, and there's a there's a goal or a want. I didn't necessarily make that the aim of my path then, but something in me 
recognized something there. And so we have that moment and then we start to learn what is this? You know, what did you learn about ourselves? We learn about the path and then we need to practice. So that's the next thing is that once we have some sense of that this does feel right or we found the good conditions, then we have to practice. We have to actually sit on the cushion, get instructions, somehow begin changing the mind. And then there's various subsequent steps after that that touch back on what we talked about first of cultivating these more refined qualities and letting go of the ones that are coarser until the mind can find its way deeper onto the path, let's say. I want to go back to describing Nibbana as eradicating greed, hatred, and delusion. That's a paraphrase. But would you say a little for folks who haven't heard that particular English wording, what greed, hatred, and delusion refers to generally, and how is that relevant to Nibbana? Yeah, good question. There are so many lists. I don't know if this is unique to the Theravada tradition, but we have so many lists of problems in the mind, and they're all referring to the same thing. But the one that I named is kind of the classic one called the three poisons that inflict the heart. But there's also the five hindrances, the seven underlying tendencies, you know, the three asavas, which are the outflows. But anyway, it's often framed in terms of these three poisons. And these qualities of greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, that sounds a little bit specific or it sounds like dramatic. Sometimes people hear that and they say, you know, I just want to be a little less stressed in my life. It's all this. But they're meant to be kind of blanket terms or umbrella terms that capture uh, basic movements of the mind that are harmful to ourselves and to others. So greed is the movement toward things in a way that is harmful. So grasping at things or clinging to things or wanting things that are inappropriate for our happiness. And we see in the world the effects of greed everywhere. You know, the capitalistic urge to take things over and, you know, get more and more. And somehow the idea of greed is more is better, more leads to happiness. And we see at deeper and deeper levels that that is not actually true. And so even if we don't want to say greed uh, for ourselves in our life, we do have wanting. And a lot of our wanting leads to suffering of some kind. Uh, and so how might we live differently so that we could still live well, but not have that extra edge of want, which comes from a sense of lack. And then hatred is the opposite. It's the movement away in a way that's harmful, pushing away Hostility, we see it globally in acts of war, aggression, destruction. And so the idea behind hatred is if I get rid of it, I'll be happy. We might say not say hatred for our life, but don't we have things that we think if that just went away, it would be better? That's a little bit of stress on the mind. How might we live differently such that we didn't need to push away things that were unpleasant? We had some other approach. And then there's delusion, you know, so we think, again, delusion, like, oh, I'm not deluded. I spent a long time, you know, studying and so forth. And, but this is, again, a general umbrella term for not quite seeing clearly and not seeing correctly, being confused or being distorted. And, wow, the media is a nice representation of that out in the outer world. But then in our inner world, this is actually the most humbling one. 
a lot of people start out thinking, oh, that's the one that I don't have. <laughs> but that's the deepest one, actually. Greed and hatred always include delusion along with them. And delusion can also stand by itself without greed or hatred associated with it. And it goes down very deeply to ultimately to the sense of ourself as a separate being struggling in an external objective world. That is a delusion, but it takes a while to get there. So if we were to correct these distortions of the mind, inappropriate movements toward and away, and also not seeing clearly, that is the adjustment in our vision that is called awakening. And so we could let go of those three things, then what would be left is nibbana. For the sake of our listeners, we often will refer to those three as attachment, aversion, and delusion. So I want them to be able to connect those dots. Your description is exactly the same. The traditions include these. They're pretty universal across Buddhism. Yeah, that's a beautiful description, Kim. And I'm wondering, particularly with regard to what you were just saying, I'm wondering, can our achievement or realization of nirvana, nirvana as peace, how inclusive is that of others? I mean, it seems like we realize that for ourselves. And it seems in what you were just saying, that there's the recognition that instead of holding ourselves as so separate, instead of being in the grips of that delusion that thinks of ourselves as like this independent, separate entity, that there is the recognition of our interconnection, of our inner being. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on nirvana as peace, as an inclusive worldview or way of being uh, with others. Yeah, definitely. It has a, a sense of inclusion or connection to other beings in a, in a way. Of course, we're seeing through beingness ultimately, but the path to get there has to include the understanding of non-separation between how things work for me and how things work for others. And there are instructions where even for a person going off to sit alone in the forest, there's sort of a long description of how a person would go and do that. They need to sit at the root of a tree or in an empty hut. And then it says they sit down, legs folded crosswise, establish mindfulness, and establish compassion, sitting with compassion for all beings. They bring their mind to the present moment. You know, it wouldn't support meditation to have any sense of hostility or difference or superiority or inferiority. You know, all these relational things are right at the heart of meditation. And then, you know, in the practical, conventional world sense, the path includes uh, sila, samadhi, and panya, ethics and meditation and wisdom. And ethical conduct is all, all relational, how we would you know, not harm others because we wouldn't want to be harmed. And there's very much a sense of a golden rule, let's treat others in the same way that would be supportive for us. I think, you know, this path of letting go includes a lot of letting go of our our selfish wishes to make only ourselves happy and to only work for our own welfare. And for some, that part of the path comes early on, and there's a lot of compassionate service and letting go of the self through serving others, and that's really integral for others. 
that opening into the world comes after a period of intensive solitary practice that during which wisdom is gained and then from that place there's a moving into more into service but perhaps to be true to the Theravada tradition, we'll add that the description of the Dharma, there are six qualities of the Dharma, and the, the sixth is to be realized individually by the wise. So uh, it's, it's one at a time for awakening. So we've talked a lot about ways that we let go of things in our lives. What role does formal meditation in your tradition play in that process? Meditation is a way to connect with kinds of letting go that we didn't know existed. We understand what it means to let go of having three cups of coffee every day. And, you know, we might have to do a little bit of work, but we can let go of that. And so then we have a sense of, we think maybe that that's what letting go is the only thing it can refer to is I had something and then I decided it was better not to have it and I did some work. Now I don't have that. But there's such a rich terrain of letting go. And in fact, there are at least five words that are used for letting go in Pali. <laughs> so that's the language of the early the Theravadan canon, Pali. Um, I think what we find out in meditation is that really letting go is a movement of mind. And so we're sitting and we didn't think we were doing anything except being mindful of our body breathing in and out and suddenly we'll feel like a release in our mid-back and it's not just a release like I relaxed because it's been a long day and my back was tense like there's something at a the more the energetic level letting go and maybe we realize that uh, the mind suddenly feels more peaceful or we practice for a while and we didn't think we were doing anything conscious but suddenly people at work say you know you really are different now you know you you seem um i don't know so much easier to talk to and we didn't go to you know communication development class or something something has changed in the mind and so we get more and more trust that things just let go and it's not something that we do but it it comes about only because of uh, following the instructions and trusting in some way. And so this is the, you know, that we start to get to the point where we realize that we're not doing the path. The path is doing us in a sense, or the path is doing itself. And every time we're there, we're in the way almost. But um, letting go almost sounds like something that we would do. So I guess we'll return to the non-volitional side of you know, letting go is something that happens when we walk the path. Oh, that's so beautiful, Kim. Thank you so much. And I'm wondering if there's anything else that comes to you right now that you'd like to share before we close. Mm. I think it would be that we don't know what the path will look like for us. We don't know what order we need to let go of things in. A lot of people with very psychological orientation arrive with their laundry list of the things they know they need to fix in their life, and they're sure the Dharma will help. That might be true. In the end, it's the Dharma that knows how to walk the path. And the more we can let that process happen, the more we can be surprised and delighted. And the biggest surprise of all is Nibbana. It's a surprise. Mm. They should put that on the list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. This has been just such a delightful conversation, and it really is a joy to listen to.
It certainly is. I could just listen to you all day. Thank you so oh, much for joining us. It's been wonderful to be here, and I really appreciated the questions, and I, I hope that many will benefit from this time. May it be so. May it be so. This was Yeshe and Zopa for Prajna Sparks. Be sure to join us every month on the new and full moons for fresh episodes. Our Why Nirvana Matters series continues until the end of the year. Shivni is our Tibetan singing bowl artist. We can't thank you enough for taking the time right now to like, follow, share, and review Prajna Sparks. It means a lot to us, and it means a lot to all the folks who haven't found us yet. If you have any questions, contact us via email, Instagram, or Facebook. Check the episode notes for those links and for more resources on today's topic. Visit us on the web at prajnafire.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Prajna Sparks. Thank you for listening. May all beings benefit.